Well, I was about to say I didn't think that was going to work, but I guess I was right. <laughs> it is 131 days until the October 20th Vancouver Municipal Elections. This is the Canby Report live show. <laughs> First off, wow, this is weird. I, I would not have thought a municipal politics podcast could have gotten this many beautiful people out on a Monday night. But, and us. And also <laughs> us. Uh, um, I am Matthew Naylor. Uh, in a textbook example of situational irony, to my right uh, is Ian Bushfield and Pat Meehan. Hi. Hi. <laughs> So I guess we've got a bit of an announcement to make, is my understanding. Yes. But first, I guess we should probably uh, acknowledge the territories before we start. Yes. Uh, we, do, we do want to acknowledge that uh, this event is taking place on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, tsleil and Squamish peoples uh, upon which the Emerald Lounge is built. Thank you for patronizing the Emerald Lounge, where Galinda goes to kick back her feet after a long day governing the... Um, Entire land of Oz. <laughs> That's where we're this going. This is a great start. So, uh, if, uh, so we do have a really cool announcement that we'd like to make. Is uh, We didn't really know when we started this podcast how many people would listen to us or if anyone would listen to us. Um, but we've been pretty, pretty wildly successful beyond sort of what I thought we could get. We've been getting hundreds more people than we thought would listen. And even my parents were in the back corner are listening, which I actually didn't think was possible. And so... One of the things that, that we've been doing is uh, we've really been working really hard to go to every event we can get to. And uh, I think uh, a few of the candidates in the room can attest to how, how many events we've been to ourselves. And we want to go to a lot more and we want to keep producing a lot more podcasts. And one of the things that allows us to be able to excuse ourselves from our significant others to be able to do that is <laughs> if we have a bit of an income stream along with it. Uh, and so one of the things we'd like to announce is that we're actually launching a Patreon account, uh, which is a word that I spent a lot of time learning how to pronounce. Uh, but yeah, if you go to patreon.com slash the Canby Report, or sorry, Canby Report, Canby Report, patreon.com slash Canby Report, uh, you'll find that we've launched a Patreon. Uh, we, we're going to have more events like this we're hoping to do, and we're going to hope to get out to every political event that happens between now and October 20th. That's Canby Rep that's patreon.com slash Canby Report. You're supposed to say the thing three times, uh, but not wrong three times. So let's go over this two more times, patreon.com slash Canby Report. Patreon.com slash report. I was thinking of putting the URL up here behind us on this screen that could pull down. Instead, you can just have a mirror of the back of our heads. But the link will be in the show notes when you listen to this tomorrow, when I maybe edit it. And uh, lightly. we want to give a big shout out to our first Patreon. Uh, I think we've already had one earlier today. It Neil. Is, Neil is thank somewhere you. in the room, and thank you very much. We've already got our first Patreon going, so... It has a great mobile site, I'm just saying. Uh, as we do with, uh, with, with uh, the, this podcast, we try to make sure that we always make, bring in different voices from different perspectives. And we also have a guest for tonight. Yes, we'd like to welcome to the stage our first guest, uh, Kelsium. Please come up and join us. So, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? About sure. what you're... Uh, but what you're about. Sure, uh, I'll do my best. Uh, so my name is Col Salem. Um, 
I'm interested in indigenous languages, uh, progressive policy. Um, I like dogs over cats. Um, I, I, I divided own, the divide, crowd already. Yeah, I like being divisive on my politics. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but I also live in uh, kind of in between Gastown and Chinatown. Uh, I grew up on the North Shore, but I live in Vancouver right now. Uh, and I was also recently elected to the Squamish Nation Council six months ago. And uh, we're definitely going to get into that a little bit. My first term. Ah, thank you. So I guess uh, one of the questions is, there's not a lot of media coverage of band council elections. We don't really see a lot of that. And so I guess the question that I would ask is sort of what's the process of getting elected to be a councillor? Well, the Squamish Nation is the second largest in BC. Uh, we have about 4,000 members. 47% live on the reserves. And for those who don't know, I meet a lot of Vancouverites who actually don't know anything about my nation or let alone the other two nations from here, even though it's like... It's in, in certain circles, it feels like it's a common thing, but like I still meet people all the time when I tell them I'm from the Squamish Nation. They think that I came from Squamish. They don't know that we have uh, three communities in that, in, on the North Shore or that the majority of our people live on the North Shore uh, or that Vancouver is within our territory. Uh, so we have 4,000 members. Um, we have about 3,000 eligible voters. We have elections every four years. It's for 16 positions. Uh, it's a, a plurality system similar to the city of Vancouver. And I got elected with, I think, 667 votes um, out of around 1,400 people that voted in the election. We, my nation's a little bit out of date in terms of our election um, regulations. We don't do mail-in ballots and we don't do um, like online voting or anything. But we're working on that. I, I really pushed for election reform when I ran and we've passed a... We're going to have a referendum on election reform in my nation. Um, pretty soon. But part of it is that we need to do mail-in ballots so that our off-reserve members who live around the world are able to vote for their elections as well. So it's uh, it's an interesting thing. It's a lot of door knocking. Uh, it's a lot of campaigning. Um, it's a lot of being known in the community and having a presence. Um, but realistically, like with a, such a large council, and this was something that I picked up on in the last election, you can win with about, like, like it's similar to the city of Vancouver, you can win with, I don't know what the number percentage was for the last city election, but like in the Squamish Council with 16 seats, you can win with around 12% support. I think in the city of Vancouver, it's like 20 something. Um, like if you get into 10th spot. Yep. So with us, it's, it, yeah, it's it's relatively easy as long as you're involved in the community, you get active and, and people trust you. So we talk a lot of crap about politicians on the, the Cambie Report, but... I think that all of us share a, a deep amount of respect for people who go through the incredibly challenging and um, at times like stress inducing uh, and and drudgery of putting your name on a ballot and standing for election. And so I want to say thank you for going and running and being part of the political process because yeah. it is incredibly important because without it, our democracy doesn't work. Well, and, and honestly, I actually, I used to be, as an Indigenous person, I used to advocate against voting in Canadian elections, uh, municipal, provincial, federal. I'm not advocating against, I never did, I never participated, uh, out of a righteous kind of self-identification um, with, with a pro-Indigenous, anti-colonial stance. And I do mm. still support people who choose not to participate, participate in colonial politics for that reason. Um, but for me, what was actually like kind of a, a bit of a wake-up moment um, in my own personal politics was actually the election of Donald Trump uh, and the realization that bad things happen when people don't show up. Um, and so I just kind of really had to grapple with this ideology that I had, which I think is still valid and useful and needed when you can build it, when ideologies are useful, when you can build power with it. 
Um, but if it's just a stance you have and you just want to be right, then it, it, it kind of defeats the purpose of trying to like actually make things better for other people. So I had to grapple with that for myself and say like, look, Donald Trump was elected because people stayed home. Um, and bad things happen when people like don't show up. So I just felt that I needed to decide to try something else. Uh, so I got involved in the provincial election and voted for the first time to change a government that I had had my entire adult life that was not serving me or the people that were like me and wanted to get some change there uh, and worked on a campaign on the North Shore um, with that. And then I the same kind of idea with my nation, just decided that I, I needed to try something. Well, and you were one of like nine un millennials essentially who are running in that election, right? Uh, yeah, we, we elected so Squamish Nation, 16 council members. Half of the council was new. It's the largest turnover in the history of a Squamish council since it started in 1981. Uh, all of the eight new council members that were elected were under the age of 36, including myself. I'm the youngest elected on the council right now. Not the youngest elected in the history of the Squamish Nation, but youngest on this council. Uh, and it was a real generational shift in terms of, of change um, with our, within my nation. So, so what kind of issues are really sort of front and center right now with the nation? Housing. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> is there any, Indigenous people need housing. Like in a, is there an affordable city? A different yeah. approach to it than, say, the city of Vancouver would be looking at right now? Well, you know what's interesting? Like, my nation is, we're, we're like... 40 years behind times when it comes to housing policy, like even within my nation, and this is the thing that we have to change. Like in my nation, there's two forms of housing, uh, or three sort of. There's, uh, we have a housing program which started in 19, this is like it's the most inefficient way to house most of your people. We have a housing program that started in 1970s where we would give people, you sign up, you put your name on a list, and then the band eventually bought, like built, pays for and gives you the right to occupy a home in the community. It's a single detached house. And so every year we would allocate 15 lots and 15 houses. They cost $150,000, $170,000 each. And we just build people single detached houses. And we build 15 a year. And some are for elders, some are for single moms, uh, single parents, and some are for our married couples. And we do 15 a year. Our housing list is at 1,200 members want a house, you know. Uh, and we build 15 a year. So even if, I, I never put my name on the list because I would never see a house in my lifetime under that. Then we have like a couple of like two or three social housing projects, but it's just the most inefficient way to do housing in our community. So this is like hilarious to say, but the city of Vancouver is far more progressive on social housing and affordable housing than my nation is. Uh, and there's lots of reasons why that is. Um, and there's lots of examples of what that is, but definitely one of the challenges that we face in my community coming into this, which is how do we build um, housing for everybody? Well, it's, it's somehow both like comforting and incredibly disheartening to know that uh, <laughs> everywhere across the region, the problem is that no one can find a place to live. But what a week it's been. Uh, there have been a couple of things that have been going on in Vancouver since the Canby Report last recorded. Uh, Gene Swanson had a rally. Yeah, I went to this on Saturday afternoon. I thought it was perfectly timed in my mind that it was going to be her rally and then the COPE nomination meeting, but I'm just bad at calendars, apparently. <laughs> the, the COPE meeting was on su Sunday, and I didn't end up going to that, but... That'd be a long rally. <laughs> yeah, well, so Jean's whole thing is challenging the rich, and she's famous for last year during the by-election taking that tax bill that she hand-drew, which is adorable, to Chip Wilson's house to be like, if we introduce my mansion tax, this is what you owe. 
Well, the BC NDP introduced this school tax, which is effectively a mansion tax, and she kind of takes credit for it. And there have been complaints about this recently. So <laughs> her approach was to go into Shaughnessy in this beautiful park that if you've never walked by the Shaughnessy Crescent Park, you should. It's lined with mansions and just like the, you know. The, the population per square kilometer in that neighborhood is something like two. There's 15 houses on that circle, and it's hard to tell how many are actually lived in. Yeah, many of them hold, uh, hold financial instruments. <laughs> but One so of Vancouver's people, largest growing demographics. So I think, I think they were saying something like none of the houses up there cost under $10 million. And so each of these is hit by the highest tier of the new tax. And that For which evokes... I, I should you know, the saddest tears and play well, the tiniest violins. And it's funny you mentioned tears because she dressed a van up as a Kleenex box, or I should say Genex box, to bring big tissues oh to big houses. There's, there's one campaign that can be relied upon to always have the puns. And so her campaign launch was this giant tissue box brought to the mansion district to say, too bad. So one of the things that's interesting about the BC assessment website is it's relatively easy to find out the value of a property and uh, calculate the amount of additional tax that that property would be paying per uh, per year. Also understanding that uh, the combined increase in uh, property wealth in the city of Vancouver for property owners was more than every single wage earner made combined in this city last year, uh, which is insane and disgusting. Remember, uh, he's the right wing one. On the I know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's bcassessment.ca if you ever want to look up your, you know, friends, bosses. Which, which is actually lower than what like a lot of assessments will actually come in at. Yeah. Mm. So when you actually get an assessment on your property, like the BC assessment office is actually going to be lower than what it actually comes in at. Well, it sell as? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And also like it is worth bearing in mind that Vancouver's property taxes are are very low on residential property compared to other cities in North America, other cities in Canada, and even other cities in like the lower mainland as I understand it. I right. the business the business tax however is much much too high and that balance needs to be addressed. Well, I mean, you know, that's 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 a that's a statement that uh, you can make. So Swanson, I have statistics to back it up, but that is not what we're talking about so tonight. So Swanson holds this rally. She gets about a hundred people out, which for a political rally is apparently on par with a Canby Report live show. Yeah. I'm just yes. fishing. Or, 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 it's, you're or, clapping for yourselves. Well, I'm just fishing. Or a very well attended pro pipeline rally at the like you know downtown, nice. competing with <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, like very, very very three thousand yeah. anti Kidna yeah. Morgan like rally. when they bring like, all the board members out. Yeah, that was a fun rally from, uh, from Alberta. <laughs> yeah, and Jean pitched it as I have this big announcement to make, and her announcement was she's running for the Cope nomination for council, which she got the next day. Yeah. Hey, uh, what? Know, she gets things done. <laughs> she, that's success. Yeah. Uh, it was it was probably the worst kept secret I think in 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 BC in Vancouver politics. Although you know she didn't run for cope in the last in the by election, not and so officially. It's, not officially, but there was a, a she a got difference. an endorsement. Yeah. Them, yeah, yeah. They 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 asked her to run with them, and they and she said, yeah. that's okay. This feels like uh, cope won the Gene Swanson candidacy. To be honest, uh, well, honestly, I think it's a, I think another honestly, nickname think, is like coalition of Gene electors. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's a value. It's a value add for them. They're, they're, they certainly have a better chance at getting a counselor with with the Gene machine and and all that that entails. Right. Like this is this is good for that party. Yeah. Well, and the other yeah. two counselors who 
council candidates who came up and spoke. Uh, there were Ann Roberts who introduced Jean, but then after was Derek O'Keefe. And Derek, for anyone who's somewhat involved in Vancouver's left, they probably met him and he's always involved in everything. He most recently helped found the Vancouver Tenants Union. So he's been out there as someone who's sort of under 40, I believe he is. So he's yeah. around there. Who also, he's got like, kids, but he, he sort of brings a new energy to yes, the party. As I get older, you. I find I'm willing to move that goalpost farther yeah, in terms of what youth is. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and the Tenants Union actually made a report and went to Victoria and made a bunch of recommendations on like changes to the Rental Tenancy Act to support wow. renters, which I think is like honestly long overdue, mm-hmm. um, and that renters do deserve a stronger voice within the political landscape. Even even just like the one that bothers me most because it's so minor is like the ability for a landlord to say no, you cannot have a pet, right. uh, and like pets are something that like human civilization has had, uh, like human society has had for. Yeah. Like going back tens and tens and thousands of years. And so how do we say, because you're a renter, you can't have that? Since cats moved into our houses and decided to stay. <laughs> well, and also hanging out at this rally was Pat Condon, the UBC landscape architect. Oh, well, he teaches pet? at the School of Landscape okay. Architecture, but right. he has worked as an urban planner for, for, for as it's said on his website, 25 years. And, and so he does have his bona fides when it comes to that. And Gene named Derek and Anne and Diana Day for school board and forget who they want to run for park board but that is the like cope slate and so i asked her well who's going to be your mayoral thing if anyone and she's like wait and see and i went and asked pat hey are you running and he's like that's not me by the way he means pat patrick condon condon <laughs> although are you running for the cope yeah. nominee? <laughs> yeah. are you running uh, for mayor because we need it, more candidates we need more race. there's not enough but that, that's the secret reason we are including my dog. announcing yeah. Patrick's candidacy oh. for uh, mayor tonight. Pat Condon announced his candidacy yesterday for the Cope nomination, which they'll decide whether they do on August 15th, which is getting a late. little late. But, you know, I've talked about this in our podcast before is I don't agree with a lot of Patrick Condon's views on sort of where transportation design should go. But he does bring a lot of ideas to the table and a lot of philosophical concepts about how a city should be built. And I'm perfectly happy having that in the debate. Even if I don't agree with him, I, you know, there are these, these ideas that like people should live closer to where they work and therefore we should have slower transit to force you to do that. Uh, not my support. It's not something I support, <laughs> but like, it's like, it's a philosophy that I, I, I think is valuable to have as a conversation piece. Like it, it requires, I understand where he is coming from and slower transit has a, it could work really well if you completely bulldoze the city and redesign a different community. Like less but, cars? Cause, mm, yeah, yeah, le- le- less cars, less roads, actually, uh, would be involved in this. Uh, the big thing Condon announced with his candidacy seeking is he wants to get Vancouver on the Vienna model of social housing, where we get to 50% non-market housing out there, which is kind of a Paid radical. for how? Paid for how? Mansion taxes. Yeah. That yeah. they don't have the authority to implement. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, Arguably the, a land the, bank. The viaduct, like, the viaduct removal plan does call for several like large swaths of land, uh, namely the ones where the viaducts are now, to be, if I recall correctly, 50% uh, social housing required in those spaces, as well as some parts of the downtown east side plan uh, for redevelopment 50%. So you can do that in some places, but, you know, it seems to me very hard to say that everywhere in the city is going to get up to 50%. And like you say, like, Who's like who's going to pay for this? Like you know, as much as we do live in a capitalist society, as much as maybe some don't want us to, um, wait for the revolution. But like we do live in a society where like that business business builds most of the housing, and so unless government is going to start doing that, 
how do we do that? Yeah. Well, unless government like massively raises taxes in certain areas to raise the revenue to order to you know fund it. Yeah. Um, and then not only that, you got the like long term game versus the short term game around housing. So it would also require a complete rethink of how the government does. <laughs> Here, here's like where the thing is baked in: how the government does business with respect to construction. Yeah. Like our roads are built by the government, but really they're built by a the series contracted. of private companies who are contracted by the government. Uh, housing is much the same. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you, though, Haseelam, because you're here, is I saw on Twitter you had some critical words for COPE over some of the word comments that were said at their meetings. Do you want to sure. reiterate those or expand oh, on yeah. those? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a mixture of things. One was, and I don't know who it was, I was just reading Francis Bulla's uh, tweets and, and uh, out of context, so I don't know the full context. I wasn't there and I haven't listened to any recordings of it. Just read the tweet, so I, I can give it a bit of a benefit of doubt. But the comment was that, uh, and if I remember correctly, that Ian Campbell, Vision Mayor candidate, Squamish Nation member, uh, counselor with the Squamish Nation, colleague of mine that's on leave, um, that he is a, a wolf developer in First Nations clothing, uh, was the comment that was said about him. Um, which I think is just like, like, I don't know. It's unfortunate because I think that what I, my comment was that there is sometimes a ignorance on the left uh, towards indigenous politics and that there is an ignorance to the way in which leftist politics can end up being anti-indigenous. That we often assume that right-wing politics, and we see this sometimes like Doug Ford and, and uh, others and Donald Trump in the States, where their politics is unabashedly anti-indigenous. Um, but there are ways in which the left has historically and contemporarily, as we're seeing from some of the comments from you know the left in, in Vancouver and pro-COPE, uh, supporters, uh, the way that the conversation around Ian's connection to uh, MST, which is a privately owned company that's collectively owned by the three nations from this territory, on land that we have reacquired after it was stolen from us, uh, which we are choosing to use to create material benefit for our members because the government has completely abdicated their responsibility to take care of our people. So it, it is, yeah. <laughs> I, I, my main point is at this point is that there's just a blindness to this kind of anti, I think it's an anti-capitalistic stance, right? That they don't want any, anything developer related as evil. Uh, and then they're painting this kind of brush with Ian that I think is really offside. Uh, and it's a type of, I think, just ignorance and blindness to indigenous politics that is showing up. And I think it's important that we address it and talk about it, especially in the context of, you know, Ian running for mayor as an Indigenous candidate. And not only as an Indigenous candidate, because we've had Indigenous candidates for mayor in the past, Cope being one of the first ones to do that back in the day, but also that he's an Indigenous candidate from one of the three communities here. He's actually from this territory uh, in a major city of Vancouver. I think it would be, you know, it's, it is actually really important and really uh, historic to think about that. that. So you, you mentioned that he's on leave right now from uh, the Squamish Council. Yeah. Uh, did you have a chance to work with him uh, much while during your council term? I know you were just elected in the most recent election before he ended up going on leave. Yep. And what were your impressions of the man? Well, this is the thing that I, you know, it's interesting for me because I'm an indigenous person um, involved in something like, I think you guys called me a political commentator, which made me giggle. Um, <laughs> That's some, okay. Sometimes people call us journalists. Right. <laughs> just don't We're call, very quick to just, correct them. Just don't call me a pundit. I think that was my only <laughs> request. But uh, no, I think some people are legitimately asking me uh, to be like, you know, um, they want me to, to verify. I don't know what it is. They want me as an indigenous person to, to legitimize another indigenous person, which I think is interesting or weird. I don't know yet. 
But I will say this about Ian. I think Ian is a very educated, um, very skilled uh, political leader, and he has been for the Squamish Nation. I think he is like completely qualified for the job that he is applying for. Uh, I think that the skills that he brings to the table are needed at um, an emeril position, um, and that he's been a negotiator for the Squamish Nation in a staff role and as a council member, uh, and that he was involved in a lot of big negotiations to the benefit of our, our community, and that those are skills that are also needed in the Merrill's office. And I think that that's so make, he's totally qualified. I don't doubt that at all. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the the new nine slate was elected in part. Uh, because of your uh, slate's opinion on the wood fiber mm-hmm. uh, LNG development. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ian Campbell was a negotiator and, and was an advocate for uh, a fair share of that development's uh, revenues going towards the uh, nations. And uh, I was wondering how, how that dynamic has played out and, and what you think his uh, role and responsibilities might have uh and attitudes have have kind of been reflected in his uh, goings on in that area. Well, yeah, wood fiber LNG is a you know it's a relatively small LNG project, industrial project proposed within the core of the Squamish territory. I mean, I say small compared to some of the other LNG projects that have been proposed and pushed for by the previous uh, BC Liberal government. Um, my community has been like the members, my, my my people, especially our members that live in the Squamish Valley, have been fiercely opposed to the project out of you know concern for both the environment and their own safety um, and the and industrialization of our territory after it was completely devastated by mining and industrialization over the last hundred years, which is now starting to come back. So from an environmentalist standpoint, we're, we're witnessing the rebirth of an uh, entire ecosystem. And then there's a project that's proposing a re, like another industrialization and our community has uh, been fiercely opposed to it. I think the problem that we've seen from a community level is a lack of clear policy in terms of how a government, a First Nations government, uh, conducts consultation with its own members. And this has often been you know, a criticism of the city of Vancouver uh, in terms of how it consults its citizens. But I think it's a challenge that First Nations also deal with. And I think that part of what I get to do now is actually uh, have a bit of an influence on how we change that and, and fix that. So that, you know, this concept of free prior and informed consent, which we hold the government to, should also be applied to ourselves as a government uh, and that our members should also get that same right extended to them on an individual basis. Uh, and I think that with the wood fiber project, it was a, it was a lack of process uh, failure on the side of how our government engages with our members. But in terms of the process of how our government negotiated with the province and the feds is actually really unique. Because what our nation was able to negotiate with the feds, with the crown, was that we would create our own environmental and cultural assessment process that the proponent had to agree to uh, and would state like had to uh, meet the requirements as a conditions as set by the Squamish Nation. So they had to go through three environmental processes. And ours wasn't just an environmental process, also a cultural assessment process. Uh, and that was the first of its kind um, in BC. It's, it's pretty unique. Uh, and I think that there are, there are problems with it um, that can be fixed, but I do think that we have to think about these things as steps along a path. And, and Ian was intimately involved with that. Um, and I, I'm not going to speak on his, own, on his behalf, but I do think that from our nation's perspective, there's problems and we try to find solutions to them. Well, he, he has been, I, I guess, acclaimed now as the 
Vision Vancouver mayoral nominee. But uh, before we move on from uh, Cope, although we went on quite a bit of a tangent there. Oh, I thought uh, we were pretty yeah. much into No, no, I, 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 I was We have notes. Who, this is who, how the dirty who, uh, of who was the uh, Who was the other... Did Cope only get one nominee, or did they get Wait, two? What do you mean? For which? For, for council. For no, they oh, have Derek O'Keefe and, and Derek Roberts. Yeah, Cope okay, is going three. through a fairly fair Oh, they got three. One, yeah, okay. they're going through a process of that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then Vision. Vision, obviously, Talib Noor Mohammed had to, had to step down from his run for mayor of Vision, unfortunately, because he had... Uh, he had a heart attack. He had a, yeah, he had a... a, a he's okay. A medical but. condition that erupted. Uh, and so he's... And so now we've got Ian Campbell running for mayor there. We've already covered off on COPE. Uh, we do know that uh, Adrian Carr is uh, now running for council, so that question has been answered. In I was going to say, you were talking about worst-kept secrets. Yes. I think by this point, anyone who thought well, Carr true. was still running for mayor is... So how how does this? I guess it was still chance. Play into the interlocking series of agreements that the Vancouver District Labor Council or VDLC uh, well, has VD- been establishing with the different parties. Well, VDLC, I think it, it got to a point where they threw their hands in the air and said, "Fine, run all the mayors you want," uh, <laughs> and actually focused on limiting it down to the council, the number of council. And so the the, 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 the VDLC agreement is is it twelve or thirteen? It's thirteen. Is now it thirteen with, with okay? Uh, which is I, 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 I twelve. So. I thought it, I thought it was twelve. It, it, well, is, isn't part of it that it's like four for a vision and then fifth if they run a mayor and that kind of thing? It's a, so no, it's it's five five vision and they get a mayor too. So they they are running a. a they're only going to nominate ten or endorse ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But each party has agreed to limit themselves so that the total limit is. 13 council close, candidates. Close to 10. Yeah. So the <laughs> VDLC has their agreement in place now, which we, we I think we talked we about talked on the last week. podcast. Uh, and so that's moving forward. And so then these mayors are going to, we'll figure out where it goes. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody wins the mayoralship with, you know, 23% of the vote. So the Vancouver left, 13, 14 candidates, uh, seven mayors, and uh, who knows well, how many like for rates, Park Board like and school board. on mayor. You, oh yeah, it's only no, down I'm, to Wei Young, Hector Bremner, and Ken Sim now. For now, yeah. Stay oh, tuned. Do we have more rumors. <laughs> the, the right can blow up all of a sudden, as we found yeah. out uh, yeah. quite recently. Um, but the way that we're going to be uh, voting is apparently going to be changing. So can uh, can someone tell us a little bit about random ballots? I think we talked about this on one of our first podcasts. A couple of so podcasts, for actually. Yeah. All of those people with the deep. 14 we're not that long into our show but on one of the first ones we talked about how vancouver has these long ballots because you have to pick all 10 council candidates so this year you're going to see 50 names there and usually they're just done alphabetical and you just go and that gives a demonstrable bias to people whose last name starts with a b c or is at almost at the end of the end of the alphabet it's a word yeah it's it's no uh so, you know, you might assume that uh, there might be no small uh, reason that the NPA's elected candidates were Affleck, Ball, DeGenova, Bremner, uh, Bremner. Uh, and so yeah. So uh, thanks to and I, 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 we have to give shoutouts because she's in the room. Is Councillor Reimer moves the motion forward? She's in the back over there. Uh, and. I, I do really think that this is one of those sort of common sense uh, ways to make the system fair is, you know, I, like I, as I mentioned in earlier podcasts, is I've been in the room where political people were talking about who should run for different council spots for a, a specific party. And one of the comments was, well, they'd be high on the ballot. And so the second that that is a question, to my mind, is a reason why we need to fix that problem. Because just because 
And speaking as a middle of the alphabet person, it's. Uh, uh, I think the system is fine. <laughs> I agree no. with Patrick. <laughs> no. Uh, but yes, it's, uh, I'm really excited to see this go forward. I think this is a really fantastic, really the common sense way we can make our system more fair. I, I do want to really point great. out that when we talked about this on the first episode, one of the first comments we got was from some guy named Sam Sullivan, who some of you may have heard of. Uh, he told us they did this in the 90s because he knows everything about BC history, <laughs> at least true. in the politics side, because he's nerdier than probably anyone in this room. He told us they tried this, and then people complained because it got confusing. And when we... We're doing the hearings this time. People said it's going to be confusing oh, again. And we're going to hear that. We're going to hear it will that. be confusing, yeah. and, and, but and, people and, can manage. And the city of Vancouver has allocated more resources to help address that. More staff, more education, yeah. more awareness leading up to the election. So how how is the actual ballot? It's, it's not going to be one randomized yes, ballot. Yes, it, it will it, be or, one randomized ballot. Okay. In order to do, we talked about this on one of the earlier podcasts, is in order to do what I think is the, the to get really nerdy, uh, if you'll bear with me. You realize how uh, nerdy we get as soon as like, a bunch of people are staring at us yeah. and we're like, oh, wait, uh, when it's, it's just us in a room, it doesn't feel so awkward. So <laughs> online elections do this fairly well where you can actually randomize each individual ballot so that if there's four people running on about 25% of all ballots, that what, th each person will be on the top of the ballot. Uh, that way it's randomized on the ballot. Unfortunately, uh, the Vancouver Charter doesn't allow for that. So this would require a provincial move. move. So what they're going to do is they're going to actually just do a randomized ballot so that this election, if you're if you're got a last name that starts with an A, uh, you might be at the end of the ballot. Uh, next election, you might be in the middle. Next election after that, you might be at the top. It'll depend on when you run. And so hopefully we can elect our we can educate our electorate to a point where they can get over this idea of this top and bottom problem but given that it exists we should actually address that internally the key and i know a lot of my friends have done this when i've told said Here, here's who i'm going to vote for is to go in with a cheat sheet what key did you think i was going to talk about go in with That's a cheat sheet That's not what they're laughing at <laughs> okay. there's a demographic <laughs> i think that's a, a good compromise between like the true fairness of just sort of like randomly arranging names on a sheet and uh, hoping people can somehow make their way through the Scantron jungle and, uh, you know, allowing people yeah. to have pre-printed, uh, this is who I'm voting for and this is where I can find their name on the ballot uh, things. And also, by the yeah, way, hoping for point. the provincial government to move quickly on something is not a good idea. <laughs> All right, so I think that's we've reached the end of the list of things we wanted to talk about for this sort of wing of the the, the, the evening. Uh, we're going to have everybody up again in about 15 to 20 minutes. We're going to have a bit of a break, and then we're going to bring uh, former Councillor Ellen Woodsworth up as well as Councillor Andrea Reimer to talk about what does a city councillor do, uh, which is, I think, a really fascinating conversation. So, yes, please fill up your drinks and empty your bladders. We will be back with the Canby Report second half with... Uh, Andrea Reimer and Ellen Woodsworth, very briefly, please go to the Patreon. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. And it remains 131 days till the Vancouver municipal elections. And the environs. <laughs> and the environs, yes. Can't forget about the environs. They make up the rest of Metro Vancouver. <laughs> and the province. But And they hate Vancouver. <laughs> oh, so many All right. Shots fired. Uh, we are back with current city councillor Andrea Reimer, 
Andrea Reimer was first elected in 2002 as a Green Party uh, school board commissioner uh, and was elected in the vision sweep of 2008 to Vancouver City Council and has been an advocate for a, a whole host of issues. I personally first met Andrea uh, when she agreed to moderate a panel on transit while I was vice president of external affairs at the Alma Mater Society, and it, it ended up being a you know, pre-debate for that mayor election that very few people showed up to. So Aww. thank you for making uh, my second uh, appearance on a stage with Andrea so much more successful than the first. <laughs> I had so many nightmares. <laughs> we are also joined by Ellen Woodsworth, and I haven't actually had a chance to meet you before. Ellen, you were a past city councillor with COPE. You were elected in yeah. 2008 as well? 2002. 2002. Lost to 2005, then back in the coalition COPE vision in 2008. Okay. I was half right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you bracketed wrong. You were in between. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you, you were right, but it was incomplete. We're going to... Yeah. Technicalities so, is the, the... So I guess you were, you were two, two terms on council, yes. uh, and uh, in that time, so both of you have now spent a lot of time at City Hall and on council... Uh, as well as yourself on school board, is I guess what we really wanted to do was a conversation about, you know, what is the day-to-day -day life? What is what is the job of a city councillor? Because I think we oftentimes talk about, you know, this vote or that vote, but I think it's a lot more than that. Is that safe to say? 24-7, <laughs> seven, seven days a week, 12 months a year. Okay, to be fair, like 27. We get a few hours of sleep in the middle of the night yeah. sometimes. So, so what is the what is the the average you know what is the the, the most common thing that a city councilor uh, comes up face to face with? Is it is it a, a, an angry voter or is it just somebody that wants an answer uh, to something? You want to start or you want me to start? You're on council. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. I'll jump in. Um, there is sort of a short list of dreaded questions, and the average day question is definitely one of them, because uh, they're like the average day is that it's not going to be average, right? Um, I wake up most mornings at about seven o'clock, which for me is incredibly early. Um, I work until about three in the morning, I sleep for four hours, and then I get up again and do it all over again. Um, but every day is really different. Um, today, for example, we're in a, we have council every other week, except for weeks that have FCM or UBCM or LMLGA or another acronym. Sure, I could tell you what those are, but if they have M in them, it's probably a municipal something or other, right? So um, uh, council weeks are obviously very focused on council meetings, which can run anywhere from two hours sometimes up to 15 or 16 hours. Um, and that happens two days in a row. We often, um, those of us in the majority on council also sit as Metro Vancouver regional directors. So we will have those board meetings um, at least once a month. But uh, I sit on three Metro committees as well. So that will be another three days that I'm doing that as well as prepping for those meetings. There's a lot of political work to line up votes for um, meetings. Uh, I think people have a misconception that city politics works like a Westminster parliamentary system. It doesn't. I have to work and go get the votes for each and every vote that we have on an issue, um, which means that if I have a motion coming forward or a staff report that's coming as a result of a motion I brought, you know, months or years ago, um, I have to go do the work. Randomized ballots was something we were talking about a little bit earlier. Um, it took me 51 days and probably about 50 hours of meetings with different staff and members of the public, 
lobby groups, um, as well as all the counselors to try and line up enough votes to get that through. And I actually did not know how that was good, vote was going to go right up until the minute that we voted. I was still thinking we were probably going to lose it because 60% of counselors um, fall in the ABCD category in council, and we lost three votes right at the last minute, so I was concerned about that. So that's a council week, a non-council week. My job is basically translating the city to the community and translating the community to city. So that means I go to a lot of events. Um, those often start. I actually have joked about, but I'm seriously, I have three council meetings left before I, I leave office, and I'm seriously considering a bylaw that outlawed breakfast meetings in the city of Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> Just out of respect to the councillors who come after me, because you'll start in a meeting at 7 a.m., um, and then you'll just keep going um, through the day at different um, meetings that governments convene, meetings that the private sector convenes, meetings at the nonprofit or advocacy sectors, um, community groups. Um, there's events like this at night. They don't often involve a podcast. This is great that you guys are doing your first live show. Um, but I feel that if I don't go to those events, I mean, my job is fundamentally to represent the community and government. So if I'm not actually out in the community, how do I ever actually do what my job is supposed to be? Um, so that's part of what the challenge is, right? Is you both have to be out in the community and in government and linking the two together. And so I guess uh, with that, what do you think the hardest part about that community engagement ends up being? Uh, in terms of the, whether it's a, an, an individual idea or like the broader element, like what do you think the hardest part about communicating to the, the community what you do is? Yeah, I it, it depends. Yeah. It depends. Andrea is with a majority party. Yeah. And she's also close to mayor in philosophically, I'd say, and personally. So there's different things you can do if you have the majority on council. In my case, I, I was a majority councillor with Mayor Larry Campbell and the Coke majority until it split into Coke Light and Classic. And then <laughs> I was I don't happy think to be classic. I don't think I've ever heard anybody that sat on that council describe it that way before. That was... <laughs> <laughs> And then we lost. It was so classic. It was terrible. And uh, then I was back in a minority position to cope and then vision. So I was actually quite free to speak on any issue I wanted to speak on and to speak on behalf of the community and to work th through, say, an issue of naming Stanley Park, the indigenous name it was supposed to be named. But I didn't have the votes to pull it right. off. That was Squay so, uh, Squay was the... Quack Quack? Sorry. So... Um, unless you want to correct me on that one. Well, I was going to say, I mean, this is, when you ask what the biggest challenge is, it's this concept, well, email is the biggest challenge. So what I do from <laughs> 10 at night until 3 in the morning is email. I answer about 300 emails a day um, and still will always have ones that I don't get to. Um, at the end of the day, which is what weekends are all about. I go to community events during the day on the weekends and at night I... Um, Okay, to be fair, I do emails on Saturday night. On Sunday night, I play soccer because I need a life, for God's sake. Oh. Um, so uh, this idea of the community is the second biggest problem. So when the community wants a name, the reality is there's not consensus on what the name is in Stanley Park or where it would go. Um, the different nations have um, different histories in Stanley Park. Um, everybody agrees it needs to be renamed, um, and I certainly fall in that category. There was a specific area of the park that they wanted named, and there wasn't an agreement at, at that point right. with that, yeah. those okay. And it, I think that, that I had to organize in a different way. Yeah. And in terms of 
whether it was the World Peace Forum or whether it was uh, Vancouver joining the Canadian Coalition of Municipalities Against Racism and Discrimination or a lot of different issues, I had to really mobilize the community, come to council, speak out, so or, or voting against the casino expansion working really, really hard to mobilize enough people so the council saw it was a general will and it was in their interest to vote for it. That's a different way than, I think, Vision's been able to accomplish a tremendous amount because you did have a majority. So you could go through and get in a, a lot of really good things moved forward. But I think in a minority situation, it's much more difficult to do that. But on the other hand, as an individual counselor, in some ways it's wonderful because you do get to speak up and speak out, but it's also you're going to those gazillion meetings, three meetings a night, three. How many events did you go to yesterday? You know, weekends are crazy. So there are different ways you are present on a council depending on your party and depending on your party has a majority, or you can get the majority. You need to lean into a mic a little bit. I would say, I mean, it's interesting to get Ellen's perspective because I, when I was first elected, I was the first Green elected in Canada. So I was definitely all by myself. It was a cope majority on school board, um, but it was in 2002, right after the 2001 provincial election. And a lot of them were NDP leaning and they had a visceral reaction to a Green Party candidate getting elected. I wouldn't say they hated me, but I certainly felt um, not well loved at the outset. Um, but I see that. Yeah, yeah, it was it was challenging, right? Um, and so I, I had this experience of being one. Um, Ellen had another fo- uh, David Cadman there with her um, when it was a majority vision, and then two cope. Um, so I I learned a lot about it, and actually I've had no my own perspective is it's been no the work I did on school board as a minority school board member has been no different than the work I did on council as a member of a block party. Um, But I think maybe it has to do with differences about voting. You know, vision doesn't require me to vote a certain way. I do sign on to a platform, um, but any issue that comes outside of the platform, casino is a good example. Um, We're quite free to do what we like. Even on the platform issues, we're quite free to do what we like, but we do have to give a heads up to the party if we're planning not to vote. I voted against the police budget this past um, budget round. They were looking for an increase to their budget. I very strongly believe that that money would be better spent on mental health and supporting people moving out of poverty because those are the two main issues people get um, arrested in Vancouver right now. So it seemed to me like that was a better way to invest that money. My party didn't agree with me. No party agreed with me, actually. But I, um, I did cast my vote with my conscience, as I have with every vote on city council. So one of the, the things that you highlighted was the difference between a Westminster system and uh, the the city council. Is this going to be a rules of order question? <laughs> it is not a rules of order question. That will be... That's know, later. He's that's, got that plant. It's okay. Oh, it's a special episode. Uh, Sign no, up for our Patreon. Uh, uh, the Patreon is available at patreon.com slash canby report. Canby report. Patreon.com slash canby report. Patreon.com slash canby report. All right. Uh, <laughs> that aside, thank you for... Uh, your forbearance there. Uh, the, the difference between that and um, uh, the the city council Roberts rules kind of uh, collegial roundtable uh, situation. Sometimes it gets a little less collegial. Uh, how do you work with members of other parties, and and how do you manage that kind of interpersonal clash when you're in a Westminster system? You can spend like 
days and days without actually having to talk to a member of another party because your whip tells you what to do. Well, and the building is designed that way too, right? Yes. Like the BC legislature is designed so you don't really see members of the other party socially on the hallways, but like Vancouver's not built that way, right? So like you guys, so how have you interacted with that, with other counselors? When I was at first on, uh, no, second, uh, second term, I, my seat, my office was right next door to counselor Suzanne Anton from the nonpartisan association. I had a lot of respect for her. She was very hardworking. She worked her way up through park board. Uh, she'd been a crown prosecutor with Sandy Carasino. But I didn't agree with her on most issues. But I thought she had the right to get something on the floor. So I would often second her motions, though I wouldn't often vote for motions. So there was that kind of collegiality. Um, in terms of working with vision, I'd been with many of the vision candidates um, in the same party just a few years before. I'd supported Andrea Reimer on some issues that she was dealing with in her Western Wilderness Society, so I had some relationship with her. So we knew each other, but as soon as we were elected as two separate parties, there were two separate parties. And we didn't, mostly didn't strategize about a particular vote that was coming up, but sometimes we did. Sometimes if, if we recognized that there would be a lot uh, to be gained by working together quite uh, in the vote, or we were concerned about the vote, there would be that discussion. What was that split like? Like, and what was the the atmosphere working with the other, uh, you know, cope light, uh, <laughs> uh, diet cope after after the uh, after the split? Because, you know, I at least you know legislatively and, and at a provincial level, uh, people who leave the party are, you know, persona non grata oftentimes, and and yeah. still you have to see these people every day in the the same. Uh, and you still need their votes to get your motions passed. I think it depends on who the leader is. Uh, Mayor Larry Campbell uh, was, could be really brutal. I mean, he had his way, and he was like a bull in a china shop sometimes. And interestingly enough, he was the toughest on Councillor Tim Lewis and Councillor Sam Sullivan. So that was a very interesting di dynamic. Um, and we did have to work with... The others, but there were the, those three issues. There was a casino, the Olympics, and the RAV line that, that broke us apart. We had very different positions on those things, and there was no moving us to a, a similar place on those other issues. We did come together. We were like people in a family who fought. Sometimes it's really ugly, and you're not talking to each other for years. And sometimes you just say, look, we have to bite the bullet. And, get this thing through, but not enough that we could actually hold together for the next election. So so you guys both worked, you both worked together recently on the, the, the city's uh, gender equity strategy, correct? Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to sort of walk through, I know we had, Ellen, you were talking to me about how that process started, was there was a gender equity strategy that had been brought in some time ago, it hadn't been renewed in a long time, and then I think uh, you, you brought this up. Do you want to talk about how that happens? Like, how do you decide to renew a policy and go through that process? And then what, what does that mean at the end of the day? Yeah, it's a good example because um, Ellen definitely initiated this work back in 2003, first mm -hmm. term. Um, there was a task force. They had a report. It got approved, like, 
June, July 2005. For those of you who follow municipal elections closely, you know what happened in November 2005, and the strategy just died for um, quite a number of years, really. In fact, when I got elected in 2008 with Ellen to council, I was setting up the advisory committees and set up a women's advisory committee because in my head there was one, like we were just continuing something that already existed, but actually I was remembering back to a report that suggested we have one. So we ended up setting up the first women's advisory committee in Canada and one of the first in North America totally by accident, <laughs> like thinking, like not understanding the importance of doing this. And there's still many cities in Canada that don't have one, but are learning from the one here. Um, the equity strategy is interesting and it sort of intersects all these discussions. So, you know, I had um, been thinking a lot about the issue of how do I use I mean, it's great. I was listening to the candidate speeches and all those things are awesome, um, except they're like 98% in the hands of the provincial and federal government. So there's definitely things you can push forward as a city and advocate for, but what can you actually do? Like, what can you actually grab the wheel and do? And gender equity is very much a similar challenge. A lot of the, the biggest issues for gender equity don't sit at the cities, but there are that, that shouldn't be excuse for not acting. It shouldn't be an excuse for not acting on housing or childcare or environmental issues or whatever it is um, that you're passionate about. So I had had trouble moving this through my largely male caucus. It was always the number two issue, right? I'd bring it up and they'd be like, nah, nah. And well, that there issue's was, important to me, but you know. But, yeah, <laughs> right. And the women on council are not all feminists. Being a woman doesn't make you a feminist, right? It's not a chromosome issue. It's a, it's a ideology. It's a like how you choose to be in the world. Um, and I wasn't able to pull the votes together. And then suddenly we had a prime minister elected who declared himself a feminist, whether or not one believes that, but suddenly the men are like, <laughs> oh, I can be a feminist. This is awesome. Um, there was the because it's 2015, the cabinet. And then right at the same time, uh, we have an urban design panel in the city, and the architects appoint um, the majority of members to that, and they sent all male members. And I brought this to my group of folks and said, I can't. I chair the nominations committee. I can't appoint these. Like, I just can't do this. It doesn't feel right. Um, I think we should work with them and get a plan. And they're like, no, like, just tell them they can't do this. So suddenly, in the span of, like, mm -hmm. you know, after eight years of trying to get a gender equity strategy motion for it, suddenly I had a mandatory 50% women on every committee. I had a review of every dollar the city granted to make sure that it was um, being done in a gender equitable way. And actually, gender equity strategy was like a, an extra. It was these other two fairly radical things that the, the majority of my caucus supported and ultimately... Uh, there was a woman on council who was quite negative in the media about it, but ended up supporting it as a result of women from Women's Transforming Cities and other organizations writing to her and saying, you might you might think that sounds okay, but it's actually not okay. We need to move forward on these issues. Can you talk about your role in that, Ellen? Andrea talked you off a lot there. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I did uh, through the, I was the liaison to the Women's Advisory Committee was to um, propose that we set up an organization which came to be known as Women Transforming Cities. And it sort of my, was my lifeline after I, I lost the election, which was a huge shock 
40, 40,000 votes lose by 91, and that's what can happen in Vancouver when you're a W. Randomized ballot. <laughs> Alan Thank lost you. to a car, so yeah, or, or it's 91 that. votes. That's what made the difference. Or maybe even three, wards? Three, <laughs> wards. Don't I, get radical. I, no, 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 I totally support wards, because then women's unpaid work could put, put on their resumes and help them get elected. But that's another story. So women transforming cities. Um, was very conscious that we had to be on the outside pushing and we decided to um, set up a hot pink paper campaign based on about 35 cafes we'd had in neighborhoods all over the lower mainland actually and in it we said there's 11 key issues that can make cities work for women and girls because women and girls work for cities but cities are not working for women and girls so first she said put a gender intersectional lens on city government and then we said transit, design of cities, childcare, violence against women, indigenous women's issues, particularly young women's electoral reform, need for award system, et cetera. And the majority of the parties, including Vision, said yes. And they, you can go on our website, see what they checked that they were already doing or that they committed to doing. And then we kept pushing that and pushing that. And so when the gender equity strategy started to emerge, then we were able to work with city staff and say, you know, we need to go really hard in these different areas. We helped them in their public meetings. And then we, we had a learn to speak out at city council cafe just a couple of days before the council meeting and brought a whole bunch of women dressed in pink. And we were really pushing it. And in the end, it was so moving. The men were all crying. And there was unanimous support from, of course, led by Andrea, and vision, but the Green voted, voted for it and the MPA, they, everyone voted for it and they were in tears, really, really understanding it's time because it's 2015, building on Trudeau's statement. But Gregor honestly said, when I said, it's not enough to have an anti-violence strategy, it has to be led from the mayor's office. And he said, yes, he got it. He, he really understood it because of his daughters, I think, and, and his former wife, a number, and your work with him. So, you know, that organization, Women Transforming Cities is just launching our hot pink pathways to women-friendly Vancouver on June 24th at the Adler Institute, and we'll be starting our next stage of the hot pink paper 2018 to get all the mayoral candidates, all the parties, all the candidates to make it a commitment before we agree to elect them or, or say we support this person, and we'll be, um, that's our next stage of pushing the women for the agenda. So I'm just going to add a final piece because it wasn't just Ellen and Andrea's show. Um, <laughs> Elizabeth Ball was very was instrumentally involved in this. When um, this last term, I made sure we made a change to advisory committees so that every single advisory committee has a vision counselor, but also a not member of vision council um, as a liaison to make sure that there's some mm, bigger perspective on the issues as well as I'm hoping more durability to the policies. And she was... She's a huge backer. She really pushed hard in her own caucus to move it forward. So this is a great example of like a, a success, a, a group of people from different parties coming together, seeing a problem, getting uh, you know a, a paper and, and moving forward on actually achieving a policy. One of the things we talked about on a recent podcast was the fact that because Vancouver City Council sits on Tuesdays, uh, and many other municipal councils sit on Monday nights. Uh, it does kind of limit the the amount of 
uh, and type of person who was able to attend and speak uh, as a member of the public at council meetings. So my question to you is, how would you advise a member of the public who has an issue to make their voice heard in municipal government in Vancouver, knowing that on Tuesday they probably have to be at work? Um, well, most important to know is that the Vancouver Charter actually specifically prohibits you from speaking at councils on Tuesdays. So if you want to come speak to council, do not come on a Tuesday. Um, you can watch it online from work. Uh, I live tweet it. I We have a Van City Clerk um, address that live tweets it. Um, and so I, I should just say, your tweets tend to be pretty spicy <laughs> sometimes. They're, they're informative, let's say. Yeah, yeah. I try in a good to help way. you be in the yeah. room with yep. me, feeling my pain. I recommend it. Joys and sorrows. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I certainly don't try and pretend that they're non-biased. I mean, I obviously have some clear biases around um, policy, and I'm quite... You know, I'm a woman that comes from a, a marginalized community. I grew up very poor. I believe strongly in the rules. The rules give us rights and they give us a voice. And I have zero time for anyone in public office or outside public office who, ah, let's just bend the rules this one time because who suffers are the people whose voices otherwise wouldn't be heard as a result of those rules. So I just, I don't have a lot of time for expediency and in, in application of rules. Um, so you can follow along. Um, the videos are also archived. Um, so if you miss counsel, you can stay up all night watching us if you'd <laughs> like. Um, I would say, though, by the time it comes to a council meeting, generally speaking, that's the like last step in a long train of engagement. So my strong advice uh, is follow council for sure, but follow committees. Like These ideas come from advisory committees. We have over two dozen advisory committees at the City of Vancouver on a variety of subjects. I know some of you are on those advisory committees. Uh, we uh, either join one or go to those meetings, which are often in the evenings or on weekends. We have Talk Vancouver, which is a way of filling in surveys or at least knowing what we're surveying about as a city. Um, you can sign up to be an interested party, like single-use item strategy that just came forward. If you go to the Vancouver.ca website and Google anything, or sorry, there's a little search bar, Google search bar, put in housing or transportation or waste or whatever you're interested in, it'll take you to a page and on that page there will always be a sign up to get more information and it'll let you know about any policies that are coming forward. By the time it comes to council, I mean, we might start with a motion, so gender equity, I bring a motion forward. Two years later, after 20,000 people have been consulted and a number of stakeholder organizations and advisory committees, council's finally voting on it. So at that point, we're probably not going to make radical changes based on a three to five minute speech from a member of the public, unless it's something incredibly compelling that really has been forgotten. Single use items, we made some changes right at the end, despite an 18 month consultation. Getting in at the front end, it's like bread. If you if you're the yeast, you'll rise through the process. <laughs> if you're like the little sprinkling on the top, you don't have as much impact in the ultimate quality of the product that's made. So earlier is always better. Well, uh, not only does Vancouver City Council exist in the past, there is also one in the future. So what are your hopes for this upcoming election? Oh, God. <laughs> well, well, you can answer as vaguely or as specifically as you'd like. Uh, all right. So uh, I'll, you, I'll give Andrea a chance to uh, recover from that question, and, and I'll throw it to, to Ellen. I think the way we've been wording it is, is what, what do you want to see out of the city after the election? Not or, even or, like... or give us an exact council breakdown. Either's good. <laughs> <laughs> 
even just as a voter, what policy ideas yeah. are sort of motivating your thoughts? Because in addition to housing, yeah. for the most part, <laughs> for the most part, you probably won't be voting for a full ballot or full slate that fills. I mean, maybe you vote for two, maybe you vote for three. Anyway, take Actually, it however, I'll, take it however you want. I have a question. I'll, I'll put it aside, but I'll come back to it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm fine to go. I mean, one of the reasons that I decided not to run again, I first got elected 16 years ago, and I honestly believe that democracies are more like juries than careers um, for elected officials. I think like civil service career, awesome, because you need that um, institutional knowledge transfer. That's what counterbalances the idea of representation in democracy as being a, a moving thing. So my my keen hope is that it is a, um, a younger, a more racialized, more indigenous, um, broader gender spectrum council. Um, my fear is that the discourse is so toxic right now and like getting more toxic all the time that those are the very people who are most likely to suffer. People just stay home because this is not the kind of election, it's not shaping up to be the kind of election where you're like, wow, I'm super like jazzed about democracy, right? You're like, oh my God. Um, so I'm quite concerned about that. And I think we all bear responsibility for that in our Twitter accounts, in our um, pub- on our podcasts, in our public discourse around it, about where are these ideas that give people hope and make them feel like um, there's opportunity. I think that any candidate who tells you that they have a solution for housing at the city <laughs> level is feeding you a line of crap. Um, so I Is there, would... Are you saying that it's not a hashtag? <laughs> <laughs> and that's not to say that every candidate shouldn't be very focused on this issue, but if they're telling you have the solution, um, mm-hmm. they're, they either have a very low grasp on Canadian constitutional law and where the answers are, um, or they're feeding you a line. And I would be very concerned about that. I do think that the the thing that I'm looking for most is either people who have no experience and are bringing those diverse perspectives or who actually know how to govern um, and create the stability. Because I think it's the mix of the two that would give us the strongest council moving forward. I think there's candidates on that are coming forward in both those camps. Um, but I, I also worry there's candidates who are exploiting this moment to try and um, basically buy your vote um, for reasons that don't seem to add up to what they say they're running for. Well, I I just wish the federal election was coming first because we're the only G8 country without a national housing program and without the feds at the table with substantial amount of money and working with the provincial government with some more money, the city is con- going to continue to go in a really tragic t- direction. And it's not just Vancouver. I was speaking at UN Habitat and... World Urban Forum. I mean, the speculators are moving all over the world and buying up housing and buying units and leaving them empty. So it, it is a something that we all need to deal with. And cities don't have a lot of ability to deal with these problems if they don't have the help with their federal and provincial counterparts. But we're not at that situation. So I think we need a mayor who's going to be committed to putting a gender intersectional lens on the policies, programs, budgets staffing and governance of the city to ensure that it represents the diversity of our city and represents the full gender perspective of our city. 
and I th I'm going to, we will be asking all the mayoral candidates and all the parties and all the candidates what their platform is. And we're going to see if they put a gendered intersectional lens on their platform. And it, whoever gets elected, I hope it is a fully representative council because we don't have any indigenous leaders there, despite Angie Todd Dennis running, and now we have an indigenous person running for mayor of Vision. We should reflect the heritage of this unceded territory that we're on. And I think we need to have at least 50% diverse women elected to council because women are the people who do the unpaid work, the volunteer work, and the low-paid work in the city. And that requires the gender equity strategy to be even more better funded than it is now and more comprehensive than it is now. And there's lots of ways we can do that, but if the parties and the candidates aren't thinking about that and they're not speaking about that, then we don't know where they stand, and we're, I won't be endorsing anyone until that's really, really clear. So that's why we're kicking off this event on June 24th, the Hot Pink Pathways to a Woman-Friendly City. So you talked a little about the lack of a national housing plan in, in Canada, and uh, you know we talked about this a little earlier, and mm -hmm. I, you know I, you suggested that I might not agree with you, and I think a couple of years ago I wouldn't have, but... Um, one. It was your reaction to Vienna, I think, that I caught. <laughs> uh, the the thing that, well, basically, the housing market went insane while I was out of the country, and then I came back, and nothing made sense anymore. And so, you know, and so I, I, Matthew's a communist, then. basically. <laughs> uh, Law school will do that. <laughs> yeah, basically, all lawyers are communists. I think is the takeaway from from that episode. Uh, no, but I, I think that there is room in in Canada's constitutional framework for uh, flexibility in in housing and in, you know, for some example, there is a Canada Health Act and hospitals are a area of provincial jurisdiction. And if people don't think that our housing market is impacted on a national level then they need to do more economic research because <laughs> great tides of money are, are moving around. But we, we also have to deal yeah. with the issues that the majority of people now live in cities, mm -hmm. yet cities don't have enough uh, authority or me mm -hmm. mechanisms to raise the money to do what needs to be done to address the populations that are have the easiest access to cities than any other level of government. So that's the, that goes hand in hand in this discussion. Absolutely agree. I think, like, that's the thing is that we expect our city councillors to do everything, but we give them the power to do nearly very little. And I think that is is sort of a, a key component in this is what city council can do is this much, and what you know whether we talk about politicians at the municipal level saying that they can do this much, or even just an expectation on the voter to do that much. I think that's ask Andrea how much of a secretary's time she has. Oh, yeah? What's the staff time, actually? That's a really good question. What is staff time like for a city councillor? Um, we get... I think we're, we're nearly wrapping up, but... since Ellen's time, but um, I get half an assistant, but they can't do any political work, so they can't research motions, they can't answer emails. They can't research they, a motion that you no, have to vote on? No. Wait, they can't tell you what no. the pros and cons or what the different issues are? No. 
How um, is that? But interesting, because we were talking about Vienna huh. earlier. Vienna is a city, but it's also a state. Um, it has all the powers of the state. And that is exactly why they've been able to do um, what they've been able to do. I also find it very interesting, as an electoral geek, um, that they're a city and a state, and they choose. They could choose to elect a premier and um, cabinet, um, but they instead choose to elect a mayor and council, and then use the powers of a state through a city governance structure, which I find quite fascinating. I'm gonna have to read up on that. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. but if we, I mean, if you imagine BC, the powers of BC rested in the hands of Vancouver City Council, a we'd need a lot better election rules really soon, um, and B, um, a lot more could get done. We could protect renters. We could actually enforce the standard of maintenance without having zero control over whether or not all those people get evicted. We have the power right now to protect buildings but not people, um, and that's just not its not a reasonable proposition in the 21st century that that's how we're going to go about fixing housing. So I am way too interested in that city-state dichotomy. <laughs> I think, so I think Matthew. Well, whoa, I, whoa, 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 yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa! I'm just whoa, thinking whoa, we can whoa. go back to ancient Greece. Can I no, know? No. Can I know what time of the night yeah. it is? Yeah. So I, I think we're. I think we're at the wrap-up point. Th- th- this is what I was going uh, to say. I'm going to to cut it off darn. because I. Uh, I do Obviously, want to more. take that question that I, I had earlier out of my pocket and say. Uh, I'm not going to ask you who you're going to be voting for because, for one thing, all the candidates haven't been named yet. But uh, do you think that you're going to be voting for a full slate on city council? Like, will you be filling out ten boxes? I don't even know what that means. I think it's a ten for ten. Yeah. Will you will you you be voting for Uh, a full like ten councilors, or will you be uh, leaving some spots blank? Probably leaving some spots blank. But that's a strategic decision sometimes to plump your yeah. ballot, and that's a mathematical thing we should eventually I'm actually talk about. I'm hoping that but. I will be able to vote a full slate, but I'm not sure <laughs> that I'll be able to right now from what I'm not hearing from the parties <laughs> and the candidates. It's true. It's been a long time that I haven't. I mean, you have to vote for 27 people, right? But when I was yep. a candidate, I'm on the stages with all these people. So I know exactly who I'm going to vote for by election day. Um, this time around, I don't think I'm going to go to that many all candidates <laughs> debates. Um, but I, I see a lot of good people coming forward. Um, the kinds of people I was talking about, younger, racialized, indigenous women, um, I think there's going to be enough to fill up the ballot for sure. Um, But I'll definitely, I I have been concerned about how much it feels like a provincial or federal election based on the issues they're talking about um, and knowing how much hard work. I mean, let me tell you, on the third hour of the debate about the ductile pipe contract that you're awarding, um, you may regret that you're running for city council, but ultimately, um, you got to keep, if, if the sewer isn't working and the water's not flowing and the buses aren't showing up and the streets aren't in repair and God help it you if it snows, um, you need to keep all those things working yeah, before two, you even get a shot. Yeah, two traffic lights weren't working on my drive here. Do I complain to you about that? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> stop, 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 stop the microphones. Uh, all right. I really want to We're going to... Uh, we're gonna we're gonna move on because we have one final segment that we love uh, to do. To try to shoehorn into the end of all of our episodes. episodes. Three, oh, it's now. our favorite thing forever for three episodes. But uh, Vancouverata, <laughs> the random facts about Vancouver, and I wanted to to start with you, Ellen. Who was the first elected city councilor, uh, oh. first female elected city councilor in Vancouver's history? 
Helena Guterich, who was a feminist and a socialist and a labor activist, and Andrea moved to motion, which named the city plaza Helena Guterich Plaza, which is just a fantastic practical thing you can do as a city councilor. What year was that? This when year. She was, no, when she was oh. elected. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Roughly. <laughs> I don't know, 1939? Yeah. Okay, it was, yeah. Roughly. Right okay. after the Depression. She was also the first person of any gender um, to speak out against anti-Chinese settlement uh, mm. sentiment in Vancouver, which it, it pains me a lot to think that it took that long, like 50 years into Vancouver to do that, but I feel proud to be a woman, to know that it was a woman that it took to say this is bullshit and you guys gotta you guys gotta think a little bit harder about what the real causes of unemployment and the depression are it's not blaming another race for that and it was across the well we're speaking here in chinatown tonight and it was across the political spectrum the socialists were anti-chinese the free market were anti-chinese everyone just blamed it and you think about that they didn't have the vote and but read irene howard's book about helena goodard she was Quite an amazing person, and it was an amazing time. And really. think about the courage it would have taken to yeah. stand up as the first woman elected, getting belittled at every meeting. There's no bathroom at City Hall that you can use. And you stand up and say, you're all racist, you need to stop doing this, and actually win that fight. And she was the first person on City Council to fight for social housing and won. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well... Uh, you moved a motion to name a plaza after her, but you wanted to talk a little bit about some other names, uh, indigenous naming in the metro Vancouver and, and broader region. Yeah, well, it's going to seem, I'm realizing now, um, a bit antithetical to that point, because um, I felt good about that motion. Every time I see an event in Helena Gutteridge Plaza, I'm like, ah, oh, it matters to have these names there and to have these histories told. Um, I, we do have an effort that we're working with um, Salem actually, and uh, from the Squamish, as well as um, Gabe George from the Tsleil-Waututh Nation and Larry Grant from the Musqueam to, uh, I think of it as sort of decolonize or um, re-indigenize the names that are here in Vancouver on different places. It's been a really deep learning experience for me as a, a not someone from the three, um, one of the three nations here. And one of the things I've learned is that historically, you would never have named a place after a person, that this would be actually, um, it, it just, it's just a like huge breach of protocol to do that. Um, and to think about that, right? When we're thinking about this idea of decolonizing or, um, sort of healing this wound that occurred as a result of colonization and all the trauma, um, that it's not just about like culture or art or these things, but really getting deep into it and trying to understand why that was, right? And if we can embrace a world where our names matter a little bit less um, and the things we do matter a little bit more because that is what would have mattered um, or the places we go or the people we're with when we're there, that that is a much more that city would be a much better city to live in, in my opinion. On that note, uh, you know, I just want to thank both of you for being here. I know that uh, it's, uh, it's it's a lot to take out of the time of a sitting councillor, and I know that it's a lot to come here and talk about what it's like to be a councillor, uh, but this was really educational for me. I found I learned a lot uh, about not just what it's like to be a councillor, but also what is, you know, different intersectional lenses and how valuable that is for us to always be applying. Uh, and this is something we try to do all the time on the podcast. And you guys, you've both been absolutely phenomenal. It's been wonderful to have you both on. Thank you.
Let's hear it for Thank Andrea you. and Ellen. And let's hear it for Salem. And let's hear it for the staff. Right them. You and can. for the, women, the men and women <coughs> and diverse people who are here who are running. Yeah. Hands yeah. up to you. And honestly, thank everybody for coming out. Uh, we were really worried that it was going to be 10 of us here with a minimum cell. Uh, and uh, we're pretty confident we've been okay on that one. So. We're pretty sure the three of us spent. Or at least will by the end of the night. Yeah. So, and again, thank everybody for here. And with that, well, thank you all for coming. We're going to be like milling around for a little bit. We hope to see you at the next one of these. Please visit the uh, patreon.com slash campy report. Patreon.com slash campy report. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, all the other things. I'm Ian Bushfield. I'm Patrick Meehan. And I'm Matthew Naylor. Thank you so much for coming. And thank you for listening.